Parts of Europe and the East. Yes. Yes, Greg, this is episode 101, and we are so, so excited to have Elizabeth as our guest today. And you'll notice I didn't try to pronounce your last name, Elizabeth. Would you be willing to pronounce it for us? It's Makatowicz. Makatowicz. Oh, that's way easier than I thought. I'm so glad I let you do it. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And what does EPM stand for? Oh, it's my initials. Oh. Elizabeth Patricia Makotowicz. All right. I just think of EDM so much. Like I, I expect us <laughs> to all get up and dance. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if we dive right in, you were incarcerated. I was. Um I got out five and a half years ago um, for a federal drug conspiracy. Um, my life kind of fell apart um, in my 20s. I, I had a really good childhood, like no abuse, no drugs. I was never exposed to anything bad. Um, but once I got on my own and out there in the world and dating, um, I came across some really abusive men. And one, my son's father uh, beat me with a wooden dowel to the point my skull was showing when it happened. Like they had to sew the muscle back and then sew the skin back. And um, I started getting seizures like right off from the brain damage. And um, when the doctors pumped me full of opiates, uh, they lied to me. They said I was on too small of a dose to get addicted. And I found out I was pregnant um, that day from from going to the hospital because they had to put me in the um, the brain scanner thing and they, they have to make sure you're not pregnant. So um, they told me that if I refuse, um, that it could result in a call to Child Protective Services because my blood pressure was going up so much um, from the amount of pain I was in and um, the brain damage effects from afterwards. So I really like had no choice. And when people say addicts choose to get high and addicts choose this, well, I didn't have a choice. Like it was either that or risk losing my children. And, you know, when it escalated, the abuse escalated, you know, he was a drug addict too. He'd just steal all my pills pretty much. And, you know, the first time I shot up, um, he had trapped me in the bathroom and said, you're going to do it. You're going to do it the right way. And I didn't want to, but I had already taken a beating that day and I really just didn't have any fight left. So that was how I shot up for the first time. And the needle is a whole other addiction in itself. And so... Yeah, my life was going to hell pretty quick. Um, I eventually went to the battered women's shelter um, called Spruce Run in Bangor, and they turned me away with two beds open. They um, at first they said my I, I had no emotion, and they didn't believe me. They said that most uh, survivors of domestic violence come in and they're like crying and they're upset and they're hysterical. I wasn't. I was in complete shell shock. I mean, this man would torture me to the point. I'd beg him to kill me and just get it over with like to 
give you an idea of like the psychological damage. Ooh, my brain fell. <laughs> my dog Just knocked put a brain point on it. <laughs> right. Sorry, I have a that's puppy okay. that's running around my table. Um, anyway, so yeah. Um, give us an idea of the psychological damage. Yeah. I never had a conscious thought about hurting him or like retaliating back, but I started having dreams about killing him. So my subconscious was like dealing with it in a different way that I was like in my conscious waking hours. And, you know, when I went to Spruce Run, when I finally said, oh, you don't believe me. Okay. Uh, the scar on my face isn't enough for you. Um, I went and I got the police records. I went and I got my hospital records. And then they did a complete 180 and said, well, your injuries are so extensive and your situation is so dangerous that it puts the other women in the shelter in danger. So the girl that got the bed didn't even get hit. The guy kicked her car. And that's domestic violence. Absolutely. You know, destroying property and intimidation. Absolutely. But in compared to my situation where I would have died if I hadn't gone to the hospital, like you're not going to help me. So, you know, drug dealers and people in a criminal life were helping me. They gave me places to hide. They, you know, gave me drugs to sell. And I was tough enough from all the trauma I had been through where I was actually, you know, kind of a force to be reckoned with you know, on the streets. I, I wasn't scared to die at this point. You know, I, I wouldn't back down for nothing. And, you know, I just kept moving my way up the chain and, you know, getting t more and more tied in with more and more dangerous people. And, oh, the other thing was once I made a deal with my father, if Spruce Run wouldn't help me, then I would sign my kids temporarily over to him. But once I did that, I lost all my health insurance. I lost any vouchers, you know, I had. And, you know, I couldn't go to the doctor anymore. I could, I was self-medicating like, and you know, I, I needed rehab, but the second you admit you need rehab, you're never getting your kids back, especially back then. This was like, you know, 15 years ago. And you know, that's why so many parents who are in addiction don't get help because they're so scared that the second they do CPS is going to come in and take their children. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, it shouldn't be to the point where people are getting arrested or overdosing or doing some horrible tragedy just to get help because they're scared. The government is going to come in and ruin their lives even more. And so I eventually caught drug trafficking charges, um, First time I ever got in trouble in 2011, I was selling bath salts and it was legal. So oddly enough, I go to jail for the first time. I'm like, it's legal. I got nothing to worry about. And, you know, after selling crack, heroin and all that stuff, never getting caught, I finally get caught with this stuff. And, you know, the government made its tax money because it was being sold in head shops. And, you know, I'm not one for conspiracies and all that stuff, but I just find it very shady that. America got in trillions of dollars in debt with China. And then all of a sudden, like a year later, all of this basalt and all of this molly and all this fentanyl starts coming over here and it's all being created in China. So I don't know wow. why. I just think that's that, really shady. <laughs> that got big really quick. Like I, I want to try to hold a little bit of space for what led you to being with a man who would treat you that way and just honor the, the fact that you survived that. Yeah. And acknowledge what a horrific, traumatic experience that was and how that might lead to dependency and then also being abandoned by the system, leading you to into the arms of gangsters, basically. basically and then yeah. having to 
raise the level of your capacity to exist in the world of gangsters. That's yeah. power in a really, in, a, in an unfortunate uh, use of it. Like the fact that you had to pull that into your capacity yeah. and be powerful in that uh, arena is, is you know, amazing. The streets kind of built me back up because I was like this battered, broken down, you know, woman who, you know, I had no confidence in myself, no nothing. And all of a sudden the streets kind of built my confidence back up and made me realize how powerful I actually am. And, you know, I was running with men that didn't respect women and they were respecting me, you know, because not really because they respected me as a woman, but because I was too much of a problem for them. And, you know, they weren't used to that. My puppy's grabbing my cord again. <laughs> Mommy, I want your attention. I'm she the puppy. Does all of the time. <laughs> What's their name? Oh, Athena. You want to see her? Come here, babies. Yeah. Come here, babies. Athena. This is oh, the girl. Hello. Oh, my gosh. She's cute as a button. And just oh, like any other dog, her. they have no idea that there's any interview or what the TV <laughs> thing is. It's like... I know. I think that's brilliant. Like the other day, um, I rent a room here, and the woman had a picture of a kitten, was showing it to my son's dog. And I'm like, and he wasn't paying any attention. I'm like, it has no meaning to him in real life. So, Elizabeth, you got busted for uh, bath salts. Yep. They and wrote a whole new that- law. They wrote a whole new law for us called the analog substance law because it wasn't actually illegal. So mm-hmm. they made it retroactive. So basically the, what the government did with this law is they could take any substance like coffee, for example, and say it has traits of an illegal substance. Like, I mean, coffee's addictive. Coffee will get you all jittery and, you know, you crash from it. You know, you, you could use that argument for coffee, but you know, where bath salts was so bad and I don't, it should be outlawed. It's a really bad drug. Are we talking about bath salts? Like you go to Whole Foods and you buy a bag of bath salts? No, no, no. Um, well, to make to give it a legal purpose to sell, that's what they called it. And you could put it in your bath, but when you take a bath, your pores open up and right. it absorbs that. So you get just as high if what you is put it? it in the bath. It's it's two components off crystal meth. It's a substance that is literally just two components different from crystal meth. Two and what they yeah. what they did is they found a way to change crystal meth and these drugs just a little bit so they wouldn't show up on the street on like cop street drugs or street test. So like, that's why they had to make the analog substance because these chemists were just changing the formula a little bit and it was a whole new drug. That's wild. Okay. So did, they, that did that retroactive law be what they ended up convicting you of, or was there something else yep. that they convicted you of? So I got busted in a hotel with bath salts and I think a couple of Suboxone or something. And that was my state. I, that was with the state of Maine and um, I did seven months and then the feds picked it up in 2013 and I got held accountable and went to jail for the same drugs twice. And the papers, when they arrested all of us, they made sure to say it's not double jeopardy because it's two different jurisdictions. Like the feds can hold you like my, my discovery for my state, my state case was in my federal paperwork. I was being held accountable for this, literally the same substance twice. 
Wow. And, you know, this is this is a problem, you know, in mass incarceration. Also, ghost weight is a very big problem. Like people are in jail for drugs that never even existed. The government just said that we're going to hold you accountable for 12 ounces of this, even though we never physically attained 12 ounces of anything. Yeah. What you're bringing up is something called the prison industrial complex, yes. which is this way that slavery is continued by in- using incarcerated peoples as labor forces and yep. then trumping them up on whatever they can get in there. And particularly marginalized, marginalized people who they know yep. have no means of defending themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a hospital saves $350,000 a year contracting their linen to be washed by inmates instead of paying regular workers. We work 40 hours a week with the threat of going to the shoe or losing good time and not going home $5 and 25 cents a month. And mind you, that doesn't even buy a box of tampons in there. And I was so excited because we in Maine, I just got the state representatives to pass a bill um, mandating all jails provide tampons and pads free of charge for women. So this is a problem. Like women will try to make their own tampons and get infections because they just can't, they can't get to it. We have no way of getting these things for ourselves. Wait, and then did- I'm sorry. You you were responsible for getting this bill passed. Like your energy helped get this passed. Yeah, I, I brought. Now. Yep, I brought a bunch of issues up with some state representatives, and I actually got a few bills passed. They took a couple of my proposals and um, put them into a bill. Another one was. Um, So there's a huge homeless problem in Bangor. We went from two homeless encampments to 10 over the pandemic, kind of like the rest of the country, how we went from three empty houses for every homeless person to 29. Um, So these landlords were um, collecting all these application fees and not even renting the apartment. They would get 10 application fees a week. You're going to get triple the rent and not even have to turn any lights on. So this was a money scam. And, you know, they'd get 70 people to apply to this apartment and you'd still see it posted. Like you couldn't find within 70 people, you couldn't find a single tenant out of all those people. Like this is a money scam and it's driving the homeless problem up. And it really only, it mostly affects felons and, you know, like you said, marginalized communities, you know, people that are targeted by discrimination and, you know, racism, all that stuff. And so they passed a bill and they added to the tenant's bill of rights um, that you could only charge an application fee if a lease was signed. And this needs to be done across the country because these landlords and it's mostly corporate landlords. Like I don't want, I don't want to like make the small time landlords feel a certain type of way. Cause it's really not them. No, let's it's be these- clear. There are large uh, real estate ventures that are purely about investments who have yes. holdings in apartment buildings and they use management companies. And it's really a, a personless uh, face to the way housing gets um applied or not applied to people. And so there's all this uh, a monetary incentive for them to to do the kinds of practices that you're describing. And you're right. And now they have processing fees. Like, what are you processing? It takes five minutes to look over an application. You can write off, you know, the criminal record, whatever you ought to pay to look at their criminal record. You can write that off with your taxes. Like, I'm not buying this. Oh, I have to pay these people that go through these applications and I have to pay for the criminal record. Man, my dad bought a package for like 40 bucks a year and he gets unlimited criminal records. Hmm. Like, you're not, your, your argument is 
faulty and you're just greedy and this well, is a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all about a profit motive, like you were saying, and about pro- uh, cr- creating slave labor practices. I, yeah. I'd like to turn back to f- sort of wrap up the story about what, how long were you incarcerated? I got 37 months and then I went back. Um, I didn't do well on probation. Like my mental health deteriorated. It didn't help that I had $1,300 worth of psych meds that um, the prison had me on and I had no way to pay for it. And psych meds are very dangerous if you just stop taking them. Like with, yeah. I was on lithium, your heart can stop. So like, you know, I, I was just trying to get a job, a house, whatever. And now all of a sudden I have $1,300 worth of psych meds that I'm now detoxing off of. So, so obviously I relapsed. I couldn't, you know, I went into DHS, like, please help me, like, please help me like get prescriptions and, you know, medical care. They told me this is when LePage was in office that I would have to get pregnant in order to get health insurance, any type of health insurance. I'm like, I'm just trying to be okay enough for my other two kids that are here. And you're telling me to bring another baby into this mess. Right. Like that's crazy to me. But, um, when I went back to Danbury, I painted murals. That was my job. Here, I got pictures for you. Yeah. Um, so I call this my blue period because they only let me paint with blue paint and then white and black, obviously, for shading. Um, I was paid $57 a month. It was oh, the most ha- one of the highest paying jobs in the prison. So this was a job that you got while you were incarcerated or as yeah. you, after you got out? No, while I was incarcerated. This is at Danbury. Um, she, the caseworker just wanted to make the place look beautiful and inspiring and not like white walls. Um, and I did, I did the trauma program while I was in there. That went, and that really helped me a lot. Um, I got into meditation while I was there and, you know, I started writing a memoir while I was there too, like about my experiences in jail and like all of the horrible things I witnessed in there. Um, like my first week at Somerset County, I witnessed an entire pot of women get stripped because they signed up for a razor and the male sergeant wanted a list of who shaved their vaginas and who didn't. Those that did were written up. And I'm like, you know, that's what sex traffickers do. You know, they dictate how you groom yourself. Like, and you guys are supposed to be officers of the law. And, um, while I was there, I was in solitary given the wrong medication. I'm high functioning autistic. But I had a bipolar, a wrong bipolar diagnosis at the time. And they gave me Seroquel, which automatically puts me in psychosis. I will be suicidal, then homicidal one minute. Like, it's just really bad. So I'm in solitary, hallucinating I'm back in my old apartment with my ex who used to trap me in the bathroom because the cell looked like my, it was set up the same way as my old bathroom was and it triggered this trauma so i have a sergeant coming in a woman telling me to kill myself and that she can't wait for me to get out so i overdose and stop wasting taxpayers money when i got out it was in the paper that she told another inmate to kill themselves and they had to cut that inmate down from a suicide attempt he tried to hang himself and that woman still works there like these people are getting pensions for treating people this way with mental health issues. I want to ask you another question. Are you ready? Yep. You talked about the trauma uh, program that you did in there. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and what were the things they taught you? 
So it's called the Resolve Program, and it's very intense. It actually takes 18 months to get through the whole thing. There's five sections, and um, I only made it through the the pre-class and the first class because I just wasn't there long enough. And that's another problem in prison. Like to get to the good classes, you have to have like a 10-year bid. Like they're, they're really not like they, they, Alderson loves to brag about their hairdressing class and how they're turning all these inmates into hairdressers. They only have 14 people every two years out of 1400 inmates. So you're not helping that many people. And so the trauma, the pre-class was like explaining trauma. We didn't get into our trauma, but it was like, what happens to the brain? You know, um, like for instance, I didn't know that the part of the brain that stores traumatic memories doesn't register time. So that's why it feels like, you know, something that happened 10 years ago, it feels like it happened last week. It just, literally does not register time. And so you learn these type of things and, you know, the reactions and what actually happens to the brain and the nervous system. And, you know, it, I have my certificate in it, so I'm actually like technically qualified to help people with trauma now. But, um, the first one was kind of, they taught us about meditation and like, um, coping skills. And it's all about distraction. If you have trauma, like sitting there talking about it is not going to help you. Like your brain doesn't know the difference between right, you're re-traumatizing yourself. Yeah. It doesn't know the difference between a traumatic memory and what's actually happening. So you're actually, yeah, you're, like you said, you're re-traumatizing yourself and you, you have to distract yourself. So you literally have to just find dumb little things. I mean, you could walk around the room and list off everything you see and, all the colors it's associated with it, like just something sp- small and petty and meaningless and just to distract yourself from it. And, um, I also found that Zen tangle art really helped me with that. It's like this meditative doodle style of art. And I'm actually creating my own color adult coloring book, um, and putting all of the, the, coping mechanisms that like worked for me and what I learned about trauma. So hopefully I'll have that out soon. <laughs> I just right, have to, awesome. I, I have like already halfway drawn, like how half the. Now, when I interrupted with this question, you were making an important point about the way that, um, incarceration guards or mm-hmm. prison guards are not, um, properly trained and are allowed to get away with uh, incredible amounts of abuse themselves. Yeah. Uh, this is a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think there's trauma behind why that happens for them and and that those people are traumatized as well? I think some of them, well, a lot of it is um, like with the men, they, a lot of them were shut down by women. And so they deep down, they hate women and they feel like they never had any control in their own lives. So, and a lot of them are domestic abusers, just they keep it in the closet and then they come to work and they take it out on us because they can get away with it. Um, you know, and it's funny because those same guards that are quick to put their hands on the women, they won't do that with the men down the hill. Right. Because it's too dangerous. Yeah. They're like, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not going to touch him. I might get injured. Exactly. Yeah. Or they come in 12 deep with, you know, electric shock shields and, you know, batons and mace and all that stuff. And, you know, here's, this is the other bill that I'm working on. And, um, so when I was at Somerset, I was forced to strip in front of cameras under duress of being maced, extracted, you know, 
SWAT team showing up, all that. They have cameras illegally placed in the solitary cell. So when you're going to the bathroom, when you're changing, all that stuff, guess what? Men are watching you. And so when I got to Alderson, I filed a PREA against them. And that stands for the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So anything sexual goes under this complaint. Now, when Alderson got the complaint back from Somerset County, they wouldn't even allow me to hold it to read it myself. They wouldn't give me a copy. They said, nope, you can't have that. I'm going, I have 100 days to file a complaint when I get out of prison. Um, I need that paperwork. That's my paper trail. They would not give it to me. They said, we don't do that here. And, you know, you, you say that's what happened, but, you know, I wasn't there. And then when I got out, the captain and four of his subordinates at Alderson all got arrested for raping and stalking inmates and tampering with PREA evidence. I went to um, the Information Act. um, FOIA. Freedom of Information Act. Yes. I went to that trying to get this complaint. It's gone. They couldn't find it. Hmm. And so this is what happens. They bury the abuse by just not giving you the paperwork to prove that you ever made a complaint or that you ever, there was ever an outcry at the time. And especially with sex offenses, there has to be an outcry when it happens. We all know that with the rape culture that's going on in America. If you don't make a big deal about it right when it happens, you might as well stay silent for the rest of your life. And all the um, Somerset County admitted to everything I was complaining about. They said, yes, we do have cameras in there. Yes, there are two men in Central. Yes, she was stripped in front of them. And it's okay. So I've requested this paperwork from Somerset County, even with a lawyer. They told me to get a lawyer to subpoena it. And I did get a lawyer. And the lawyer said, you can't subpoena anything without an open case. And you can't open a case without the paperwork. So it's a catch-22. And they know this. So I'm proposing a bill with the state representatives I work with that an institution gets fined like $500 a day for every day they stonewall an inmate on this paperwork. Because they keep bearing the abuse. And it's not just prisons. It's colleges bearing rape stats. It's the military. You know, you hear Paris Hilton talking about these boarding schools. If this can happen to someone like Paris Hilton with all of her privilege and all of her power, you know, the rest of us are screwed. Yeah. And this is why men have to become better allies around this stuff. Why, why, what we're calling the new warrior masculine has to step forward and be able to step up and help people. And and break this stuff Hold down because it's being swept under the yeah yeah and be accountable and then step up to help hold other men accountable. Absolutely, like you know, I was told by cons- a conservative conservative woman when I got out of prison, if you don't want to get raped by cops, then don't break the law and go to jail. You know what? Just say you're okay with cops being predators and that you view women like me as trash and you think it's okay when men sexually assault us because that's what it really comes down to. You know, women that are not considered high value, it's okay when they get beaten. It's okay when they get raped. If you don't respect every woman for just existing, then you're a misogynist. Hands down. I have a question for you because you... The beginning of all this is hell. You're in total hell. I am. Now you're incarcerated. Yeah. What was the spark that you had in you to start climbing out? 
honestly, it was defiance. Like I had so many people banking on the fact that I was going to die when I got out or I was just going to go back to selling drugs and, you know, ruin my life. And I wanted to prove them wrong. Like you're not going to pin me a statistic on me. Like you're not going to do that. You're not going to break me to the point where, you know, I'm not going to give you that satisfaction of falling apart because you're a cruel, awful person in a position of power that you shouldn't have. So the same energy I'd say that you survived on the streets with and rose up through the ranks is that same energy. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did um, you create that in yourself? What happened? What switched it to, to put you in that p- mode of self-empowerment? What happened? Yeah. And positivity, like you're really engaged <laughs> in positive change. You know? I am. Well, because, you know, I look at it like if I went through that, and I can put a stop to it because I put went through that, it would make it worth it. If I can put an end to this for others, then it'll make that the hell that I fought through, you know, worth it 10 times over. How did you find the resources in your side yourself to create that new approach? How did you step out of the role of victim that society was trying to just crush you into and become powerful? I hated being a victim. I hated feeling powerless. And, you know, that was something I had to stop doing. I I would gaslight myself worse than anyone. Like I would literally tell myself I've been through worse. Well, at least he didn't put me in the hospital this time. Like I've been through worse, like whatever. And it just because I'd been through worse, like I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that, you know, it still wasn't right and I didn't deserve it. And just because I could take it doesn't mean I should. And so it was really just kind of like refocusing because I was addicted to the trauma at the end of the day, you know, I being in the midst of chaos was a lot easier for me than, you know, sitting here and being like, yep, I'm fine. You know, just waiting for shit to hit the fan. It was that, you know, right before, you know, the the other shoe dropped that I couldn't sit with and I couldn't handle that. And then I would, you know, end up putting myself in situations that, you know, at the end of the day, I should have known would have been chaotic and would have been traumatizing and would have gotten me in trouble. But it was just like, I couldn't, you know, handle that. You know, I'm going to sit here and be calm and, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. And it, like, there, there was none of that for me. So and you expressed that you were raised in a very safe, normal home and then you get out on your own and the wheels come off the bus. Do you think your parents like held the environment for you growing up where you didn't have to do anything? You could sort of just coast. And then once you were responsible for your own thing, like you also said, um, well, I'm wondering like the source, you know? Right. Well, you know, In the last year, I found out I was high functioning autistic. So I've struggled with mental health issues that I didn't understand for, you know, years. And I had doctors giving me medications that would put me in psychosis or make me worse. And the react, the mental state I would get in from these medications would terrify me. And I didn't understand them. And so when I tell these doctors this, you know, they're so arrogant on their own PhD. They don't want to listen to someone with mental health issues telling them they're wrong or 
whatever they did was wrong. And so I had to, you know, I would fight with these people and they put in my chart that I was defiant, that I was this, that I'm refusing treatment. Yeah. I'm refusing your treatment. Cause it's making me want to kill myself. Like I'm, I'm not normally a suicidal person. Like on the only time I've ever been suicidal is when you've put me on these medications. And so that was very hard to deal with. And, you know, I, I had learning disabilities. Like I struggled with math and science. Like I was very good at English art and, you know, all, music and all that stuff, but I struggled in other ways. And I also had sensory issues that, you know, I would get completely overwhelmed from overstimulation and I didn't know what was happening to me. And so it was a lot of, you know, you know, and being a high functioning autistic, like, reading between the lines wasn't a thing I could do for a lot of years until I became completely traumatized. And, you know, now I know every, all the signs of a sociopath. Like it was like, I had to learn the absolute hard way because, you know, the indirect stuff with neurotypical people just didn't really help me a lot. Do you have a relationship with your two children? I do. And I do. Um, are they still with your father? They are. He adopted them and they come whenever they want to. And I still pick them up. You know, well, when I was still in Maine, I'd pick them up. But now now they're coming down for the summer and it's I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I still have a great relationship with them. And this wasn't the way I wanted things to go. But when I got out, you know, I was on lithium and I went through this two years, you know, even after I was on probation where they were, I, they were still, you know, you're bipolar, you're bipolar, you need medication, you know, and they put me on these medications. And for about nine months, I didn't come out of my house because I had agoraphobia so bad, you know, these medications just like completely. So it wasn't good for them to see me like that. Like I would, you know, was sleeping all the time from these medications. And I wasn't like, I wasn't like I am now. Like I would not have been able to come on a podcast and talk to you in that state at all. Like I was a complete mess from these medications. So, you know, after I got out in these five years that I've been out, I really had to like, first I had to tackle my trauma. Then I had to figure out what was going on with my mental health. Then I could finally, you know, tackle my addiction. But like for a while, I just had to be on Suboxone because, you know, the trauma was just too triggering. I wasn't getting high because I couldn't stand being sober. I I was getting high because the trauma was so bad. I was scared I was going to react, you know, in a way that would put me in jail again. Yeah. Wow. This is the story here is so intense that there's this risk of bypassing it to get to what you've done with it. And I just want to acknowledge how intense this was and that we could spend literally probably two, three hours going over the details of that. But I also would like to transition if you're ready, if if you feel heard enough. And what I want to do is I want to go ahead and just show the work that you do on on your website for and and the art that you're creating. Um, Let me see. There it is. The EPM clothing line. And everything is environmentally friendly and it's very inclusive too. It comes in plus sizes. Are you seeing this on the screen guys? Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about this design right here. So that's my lucky koi fish. And, um, 
I put gold, a couple gold scales in just to like draw in abundance and wealth. Like I'm very like all about feng shui and law of attraction. And like, I love that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I try to like do things with numerology and just, you know, things that, you know, look beautiful. Like this is one of my shirts that I'm wearing. Yeah. And, and this, is, uh, this is art that you've painted, right? These yes. are from your paintings. Yes. And then now you're taking them and you're putting them in a place where you can create a business for yourself and, yep. and to support yourself and, and using your creative power. I mean, look at these designs. These are great. I love the shoulder yeah. row on this one. The butterfly um, with the rose. The colors are very rich and deep. Yeah. yeah. And the best, the thing I was so happy about the galleries is that it's sized properly. Like, you know, skinniness is shoved down women's throats. And, you know, we're basically told that our value depends on how skinny and pretty we are. And a lot of brands will size their clothes really small and it feeds into body dysmorphia. I've never struggled with an eating disorder, but I've had plenty of friends that do. And I would never want to put you know, my art on a product that would, you know, possibly feed into that because like, this is a small and it's actually a little bit big, like all of the stuff, like when you order it extra small, like expect it to be a little bit big, but it's because their size a little bit bigger than, you know, most other brands. And I was really, you know, happy about that because, you know, I, I just, I want to empower women to feel stunning and confident and beautiful. Like they could, you know, walk through hell and bring the devil to his knees and, you know, we're, we're worth so much more than how skinny and pretty we are. Are you finding this a viable business for yourself? Uh, is it still struggling? Are you, how are well, you doing as far as an entrepreneur goes? I am doing a lot better now that I'm down in Texas. Like there's just no money up in Maine. Like I, you know, I, I had it in a couple of stores up there and I got like $80 one month. <laughs> like, it's just not like, and you know, there's a lot more vendor shows down here. So, um, I have a couple stores lined up that are like really excited to carry my brand. So, but, um, on, on, I, I do cleaning on the side as well. So like I market my own cleaning jobs because I don't get triggered that way. I don't have to deal with anybody. And you know, that's just, that's the best, you know, route for my mental health. So you just mentioned like you don't get triggered by anybody. So would you say you're on a tightrope for yourself to a degree? Um, I don't put myself in situations like I don't go to the bar. <laughs> like I don't put myself in situations where something could possibly happen because, you know, I get triggered by certain men just looking at me like I will literally put, you know, my hand on the knife I have, I always carry, you know, just because I'm like, what are you going to do? Like mm. I've had men like grab me. I've had men stalk me. I've had men beat me and rape me to the point, you know, I don't want to go through it again. Right. And I know my brain can't handle it because, you know, I, I had a friend, um, come up behind me. And my ex used to choke me to the point where like he damaged my air pipe. And for a year afterwards, it would collapse in on itself. Well, my friend came up behind me just joking and like reached for my throat. And I ended up smashing a bottle over his face. I mean, I felt horrible about it afterwards, but it's like, dude, don't do that. Like I'm my, like, I don't think I just react and it's not in my control. 
And I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person that reacts that way. So now I noticed on your Instagram that you, um, Yeah, I noticed that you on your Instagram, I saw that you have a partner. Yes, I do. I so he's good. <laughs> how does that feel after all of this trauma? He was like the one of the like pretty much the first serious relationship. Like and we've been together for like officially four years. Like we talked like a long time before then. But, you know. He was, he like respect and he has trauma himself. Like he did, he did 18 months straight of solitary. He's got trauma and you know, he was in a, some of the way more violent men's prisons where he was, he was in prison, uh, riots. Like he, he went through like some crazy stuff. And so we kind of have that understanding where like we have an understanding of each other. Like we, 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 we empathize with each other. So I think that just works out nice for us. And, you know, we like the same stuff and we, we have a, we have a good thing going. So yeah, but it was, it was weird. Like I, (laughs) I, like we've been engaged for four years and, you know, he, he knows, he, he knows I'm like terrified of like becoming trapped and, you know, being someone's property again. So he, he's like, let me like take all the time I need. And he like respects me that way. So it's good. Like, we That's just amazing. we have a good thing going. Tell me about his level of emotional intelligence. Like, does he talk about his feelings? Um. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, he he's he's kind of like ADD, ADHD. So sometimes he'll like start talking really fast, like when he's mad, and like he gets overwhelmed easily, like I do, like kind of like with the overstimulation thing. But you know, we kind of we we understand each other's issues, so I think it's you know, it's easier for us to empathize with each other. Is your father and your children a part of your life with your partner? Your Oh yeah. He, they'd come over and spend the night and we'd take them on, you know, we took them to Fort Knox one day and down to, um, is there any gold in there? No, there's nothing there. (laughs) There's nothing there. There's no gold in Fort Knox. No, in Maine. No, Nothing ever even happened there. There's they built Fort that. Knox, Maine? Yeah, it's in Maine. Oh. Yeah, they built this giant fort thinking the British or somebody was coming and then nobody ever actually came. So it was just like this big empty like fort. So it's not the gold repository fort. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry I interrupted you because you were telling oh, okay. some beautiful story about how you get to hang out with your family. But I was like, I, I finally talked to someone who went to Fort Knox. I've been wanting to know. <laughs> Ron Fort Knox. Right. Um, well, Elizabeth, you've really, I mean, my hat is off to you, which is a stupid statement, but <laughs> like you've really been creating a life that I admire and, and who you are as an individual meeting you through this, just so strongly engaged in positivity. What would you say to someone are like this is a big thing for me the element of hope how do you maintain your hope every day you know especially with everything going on i mean with the gop just reducing us to nothing but birthers and trying to 
enslave us further. You know, I think laughter makes the pain go down easier. And that's just kind of a little statement that I've like always told myself, you know, cause it does like we'd be sitting there like going through the worst of the worst in prison and we'd all be, you know, super happy and just like straight belly laughing, you know, over nothing. And, you know, I think it's just little things like that. You know, I, I also started, you know, when I got out, I, I was trying to change my mindset. So I started making like list gratitude lists because, you know, at the end of the day, like as hard as what I went through, I was sitting next to women going through 10 times worse. You know, there was women in there that the CPS was telling them, we don't know where your children are. And they're sitting there doing 10 years. And I just couldn't imagine that hell of being terrified. You know, the state lost my kids or, you know, whatever happening at home. And I watched women, you know, their children died while they were in there. And they, it was it during the Puerto Rican, um, that huge hurricane that came through Puerto Rico and they wouldn't let her go say goodbye to him. And she was there on a BS technicality. She went to see her mother who was dying and they violated her for it. Like, and sent her back to prison. Like, and it's just, I don't know, but you know, it also, it gives me hope because people are waking up and you know, they're, they're seeing things for what it is. Like, you know, I, I, I met a handful of women in prison that had been sterilized against their will by the prisons. This was before Trump filled up the ice camps and you heard about all those refugee women getting sterilized against their will. And at one point I realized, you know, not a single one of those women were white. And now all of a sudden it's a great day for white lives everywhere. Not with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and over the pandemic, all these prisons were taking out PPP loans and expanding their facilities to add beds on. And, you know, they're already doing, they're, they're already getting fined for fire hazards in there because they have too many people, but one inmate will pay that fine 10 times over. So it's way more worth it to just break the law and have a bunch of inmates that that's a fire hazard because they get so much money for it. And, you know, that they, I, I'm so tired of people like, Oh, well, you get three free medical care and free food. The boxes that the food comes in says right on the side of it, not for human consumption. And it makes people so, sick. I got to step in here because for 18 months, I worked for a company called Zabo as the food associate food service director for the Sonoma County jail. So I know exactly what you're talking about because it was literally my job for 18 months to ensure that the nutritional qualifications were met at the Sonoma County jail. So that was my only uh, experience of being inside. And so when you talk about the level of dietary value that, that we feed these humans, you're right on point. Yeah. Like it's, it's insane what we give these people to eat. And I was, I was there when they decided that women are smaller than men. So we only needed half the amount of food. Right. That the men did. And they literally cut our portions in half. And it's like, dude, you guys are so cheap, so greedy. And here, the taxpayers at home will love this. This is where some of their money's going. So when you get to federal prison, you have to, um, if you don't have your GED or high school diploma, you have to take the GED. That's great. If you 
don't actually have it. But what was happening is, you know, you have women who can't get paperwork from the outside. So they're telling you, if you don't provide your high school diploma or transcripts, you're going to have to take the GED. So these caseworkers weren't getting them for anybody. And then we find out that it's, they get $2,000 for every person that's administered that is in the GED and then another two grand when they graduate. So we had women with PhDs and bachelor's degrees walking out of prison with GEDs. I'm like, are you kidding me? And then they, they cut another corner and they don't pay regular teachers. They, they tell the inmates with PhDs to teach the other inmates and help them pass their GED. Hmm. So were you convicted of a felony? Yep. So does that mean there's no way that you could run for office and start to change some of these things yourself? I don't think so. <laughs> Do you have a desire to activate your life at the, the level of, of leadership that I'm asking about? I mean, I would be definitely be open to it. Um, I don't think they would ever allow me to, but I mean... I, well, I don't think they could stop you. When I hear you talk, <laughs> I don't think anyone could stop you at this point. They'd have to put a bullet in you. Right. That's true. That's true. And, you know, now that I'm down south, uh, a lot of them probably would. Yeah. Well, that seems to be prevalent throughout the United States. Yeah. There was a shooting. There was a mass shooting in Maine. Well, there were only yeah. like three people died. I'm like, wow, that's like the first time that ever happened. So now that you're in Texas, because all your political work that I've heard about was up in Maine. Yeah, I still talk to those state reps and I'm trying to get, you know, tied in down here. But it's um, a lot scarier down here. Really? Is it? Because it's all Republicans. They they do. Oh, my God. I did a political podcast and I thought it was going to be like minded people. It wasn't. Um, they brought this lawyer Republican from Texas and I ended up getting into a huge argument with him on this podcast. Like it's men that don't listen to you because you're a woman and how dare you speak against them because mm. they're men. And like, I, it's just so patriarchal and it's like one of my really bad buttons that where I will step out of character real quick. <laughs> right. Know, because with, it's super triggering. Like that. Yeah. 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 They just want you to, you know, I was in jail with, um, Paula pages, the main, the former Maine's governor, um, the escorts that he used to hire. And, you know, I remember he got on TV when I was in prison and said, um, black thugs from the hood, come up and impregnate our white women and flood our streets with drugs. Dude, I was a drug dealer. I participated in bringing these drugs into Maine. Like, you, you're really going to sit there and try to sell this story that these inner city kids were more likely to join a gang, get killed, or, you know, something awful happened and then graduate high school. No, they could come up to Maine and quadruple their money. The only reason they're coming up here is because white police informants and white drug addicts are going down and getting them. Maine is 94% white people and it, it is all, and it's mostly the police informants because they get these, you know, revolving doors of one dealer after another, you know, going, getting locked up. And now that they've crossed state lines, it's an even bigger charge. So, and you know, you see that down here too, with them saying, oh, the cartels, you know, sending these refugees with all these drugs, when in fact, 86% of them is Americans going across the border and getting these drugs. Like, I am so tired of white men gaslighting marginalized communities. Like, I'm not here for it. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god you. i'm reading this you. book right now called the 1619 project and it's a hard read and everything you just said kind of encapsulates the whole book like um, you know i understand a lot than of white fragility White male fragility. White male fragility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these these conservative women that want to uphold, you know, the patriarchal prison that they're in, like, you can be the trustee of the block. I'm good. I'm not doing that. Well, when you wake up with silk sheets and someone's made your breakfast for you, you know, right. it's kind of like, hey, my life's good. Right. Well, And the, the things that make it good, I want to keep. Yeah, I just have to shut up and let this man run over me and control me. And, you know, if he finds someone younger and prettier, he's going to cast me aside anyway. So, like, they're crazy. I think they're so crazy. Why, why would you? I, I don't <laughs> I'm wondering, even in that deeply uh, red environment, you speak so profoundly about women's issues and about these ideas that it might be possible to turn them. But I'm asking an awful lot to ask of you, right? Like, right. But I would. Well, here's the thing: a couple things. One, there are we know bastions of um, conscious thinking. Austin, Austin, right? Um, I don't think it matters. What's coming to mind? One thing, like more and more in this element of healing and consciousness, it comes to me to come from love and call people in instead of calling people out inclusivity instead of. So in this realm of red state and conservative thought GOP, one, I would encourage the three of us and everyone to still love everyone we're interacting with. Yes. I, I try, but when they start talking about enslaving me and my entire gender, like that's when I kind of kind of well, can't deal with that. Anymore. <laughs> well, I would say one with everything you've been to fuck them, you know, right. your anger's on point. And I encourage that passion, you know, to it's that passion. That's like, no more, no yeah. more of this. Exactly. Yeah. That's on point. All right. So you mentioned earlier that humor is a great source of hope for each day. Are there any stand-up comics that you really appreciate? Um, well, in prison, we watched um, that lip-syncing show with Nick Cannon on it where they have, like, the comedy rap battles, and we would just, like, lose it, like – lose it laughing like it's so stupid but it's funny like and you know anytime there was a funny movie on like we'd be quick to all pile in and like let's watch it together like you know we we kind of create little communities you know within prison where you know i never found you know supportive women they were always kind of like low-key jealous or you know on that hater energy and well it 
not all of them, but it was, it was rare. And you you didn't really find that there. Like we're all in the gutter together. Like we're all trying to, you know, we've all been discarded by society. And, you know, we just kind of have this like sisterhood where we lift each other up. I still talk to these women, you know, I still like, we still help each other out with our businesses and, you know, hyping each other up. And it's just, you know, that part of the experience, like I was grateful for. And, you know, that's what, I try to hold on to because they couldn't, they couldn't break us. They couldn't, you know, destroy us in that way. You know, they wanted us, you know, you have officers that will come in and if they see you're happy and in a good mood, they will mess with you just because of that. Like, how dare you not be depressed and suicidal in jail? Like, Mm. and I'm not trying to like make it sound like it was this great time because it wasn't. And it was absolutely horrible, but you know, the, the, the good parts were good. There were these small moments of respite where comedy and camaraderie could bring you to this point of your humanity, really. Yeah. Like when I got my discovery and one of the CIs, her dumbass gave her cell phone to the feds and didn't take the pictures of her sucking dick out of the phone. And it was in all 14 of our discoveries, like blown right up pictures. Like this is why I tell people like, don't snitch, don't cooperate with the government. They're not going to protect you. Like this girl, like all kinds of titty shots, all kinds of everything shot, like every dirty picture this girl took of herself was in 14 of our discoveries that she told on all of us. Like, I mean, that was like comic relief for me. I was like, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I can think of other reasons why a BJ shot would be funny, but that wasn't one of them. No, but then the cops come in. They're like, this is a uh, pornographic material, but it's your discovery. So do you, do you care if we take this? And I'm sitting there like, well, the part where she did tell on me, it's not on this page because she's got a dick in her mouth. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah they they didn't know what to do with me after that and they just they they brought two women with them because they were like this is really awkward and this involves like sexual material so i don't know what to do <laughs> well considering the abuse that you've uh, experienced at all of these levels it's a wonder that you have any kind of sexual desire left at all <laughs> yeah um that that's it's funny because the, you can actually like yeah, it, it'll go off for like a long time. Like you just won't have any like desire or arousal. And that's like, and I was talking about that with um, some, some friends I have that were former porn stars. Like they don't, they're not attracted to men anymore. Like pretty much all the former porn stars or prostitutes I know that were into men, they are strictly like lesbian now. Like they, what do you think it is about that? Why is that the case? Because m- most men are predators. And now after you see that, it's really hard to even like, even think like, oh yeah, I'm going to get close. I'm going to get intimate with you again. Like, or at all. Like, it's just like, dude, they're so violent and they just expect it. Like, how dare you say no to them? Like, all these men, even the ones who are, like, good guys, it's how dare you say no to them? Like, <laughs> um, Mark and I were just speaking of this right before this podcast episode started because I'm single and I'm feeling that spring thing. Like, I want to, if you don't mind the, you know. Right. The, the Share it, Greg. Crassness of this. I want to fuck. And, um, <laughs> and Mark was like, well, there's a basic 
element of biology and nature where hunter and gatherer, and again, speaking very generally, men as hunters and women as gatherers, and a man's sexual energy is often seen as predatory. It is. Yeah. Well, they make it predatory. Like women like sex. They, we do, but we have to feel safe and, you know, emotionally supported in order for us to even want to do it. Otherwise it's fine. Hurry the fuck up, get it over with. Well, let me ask you this because as a human, there's an element of wildness that I really appreciate to fun sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that wild nature has fierceness as an aspect to it, not dominating, but when it's matched, when it's um, when there's space for it for both people. So yeah. how? what advice would you say to me? Like, well, Greg, keep this in mind with your actions and well you know it's just always be respectful and you know women are tired of being catcalled and just you know men have the audacity to be like oh well you know i did all this stuff for her and she won't you know have sex with me okay well do you know how awful it feels to be a woman thinking that this man is your friend and that he has your back and then all of a sudden it's really just he just wants to have sex with you yeah it's dependent it's it's another form of prostitution at that point exactly like you know go buy a prostitute like don't waste my time like i can buy my own food i can buy my own drinks like you know i i was so independent for years like i wouldn't let men buy me anything i wouldn't do their drugs like i had my own like you are not gonna have any reason to think that i owe you sex like, because I'm not putting myself in that position because I'll, I'll freak out and kill you. Like, you're not <laughs> doing that to me. <laughs> How old are your children, if you don't mind my asking? My daughter is 17 and my son is 15. And, you know, I was my son, you know, he had this little girlfriend and she broke up with him. And I was I felt so bad for him. But at the same time, I was like so happy with how he handled it. Like he left her alone. He was like, okay, like he was sad, but you know, he respected it. And you know, he was just like, okay, you know, and like my heart broke for him. But at the same time, I'm like, good. Like he respected her. Yeah. There's a point here that I think is important to make because our male drives are not an excuse to act predatory. And at the same time, it's not, um, you shouldn't feel bad about the fact that you're biologically driven this way. And that's what you have to learn is the art of behavior. You have to learn to be hospitable, to be a good human being with people and to let go of an orgasm. Right. No one owes you any of that. You don't have a right over a woman's body. None of that. And the truth is that magnetism can actually serve you really well when you align it with your heart and with this idea of equanimity and people being in it together and feel her. Don't just feel yourself. Right. And you know, I, you hear all these men going, Oh yeah, she gets off. I'm like, yeah, I bet she fakes it because she wanted you to be done. You know, women have four spots on their body that you can stimulate to reach orgasm. And 98% of these men can't even get one. (laughs) 
And we could end on that note. (laughs) It's a really uncomfortable subject. And for someone who's experienced so much male trauma, I'm really grateful that you were willing to to go there with us. It's a lot to ask. And I I just... I went through years where like I would, I became a pro at demasculation. Like these, like I, I think I had one guy come up to me and try to get me to screw him for some drugs, not realizing who I was and that, um, I dealt with people at the top and I had way more stuff as my head stash than he was ever selling. And so, you know, women in the drug world, they're automatically viewed as sluts, trash. Mm -hmm. Like it's very hard to get respect. So, you know, I wouldn't sleep with my dealers. Like that was a rule that I had, you know, I wouldn't, you know, ever because you don't get respected. Then you get taken advantage of then it's, Oh, how dare you say no to me? So like if, there are any women out there in, in the playing in the streets, please keep that in mind because it can get you hurt. And, um, you know, I became very good at demasculating these, you know, want to be tough, you know, gangster, you know, clowns that just used women and chewed them up and spit them out. And a lot of the time they couldn't even hustle their own stuff. They would take the girl's prescriptions or, you know, Oh, I'll hold that for you. You know, completely take over whatever she has. And so I would, I would have to like be an asshole essentially. Like, no, you're not going to run me over because you're a man. And you know, that's, I see that a lot in kind of like the corporate setting too, where they just like want to run women over and, you know, not either ignore what we're saying completely and just not even acknowledge us because they have no decent argument for what we're saying, you know, or just, talk over us and not let us get a word in. And, you know, there's a through line here about colonizer mentality, about enslaver mentality. And it runs through all of the aspects of this conversation from just even like simple sexual interactions between men and women all the way through the corporate culture, as you just described the prison industrial complex, the drug companies, and then the drug, uh, uh, you know, the street, street right. drugs, right? right. It, it, we have got to deprogram ourselves and decolonize our minds. We have Absolutely. got to do this work if we are going to survive. Exactly. You know, when I was growing up in the nineties, they were having countdowns for when teenage girls were old, were illegal to have sex with like men were having these countdowns and you know, like th- that was normal. Like we all thought that was normal. And now I'm looking back on it going, huh, no wonder I was 15 dating a 21 year old felon and, you know, thinking I was a shit for doing so. Like they, they program it into you like, Oh, older men liking you mean is, you know, what you, what you want in life. And it's really not like you're going to get yourself trapped in a bad relationship or, you know, stuck with a baby that you can't really take care of. And, it's just, it's awful. Like we need to address this rape culture and men being told no and thinking they're being oppressed for it. Like the difference between misandry and misogyny is, you know, misandry will hurt some feelings and, you know, damage some male egos while misogyny kills women every day. I've never heard that term misandry. Yeah, it's the new term the incels are using for women like me that um, are kind of more on the feminist side of things and, um, you know, don't 
believe in like the traditional roles that are, you know, we want, we call out toxic masculinity. They don't like that because, you know, how dare, how, how dare we say anything to them? They're a man. And misandry is a female version of misogyny, but you know, it's really only just women telling men what they are. Well, real misandry isn't happening in those conversations. The incels are accusing people of something that's not actually happening. <laughs> or to really be happening, it would have to be really significant and be prevalent throughout our entire culture. Yeah, and that's just not the case. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just think this whole country would be so much better if white people had colonized themselves to be like natives. We wouldn't have mass shootings. We wouldn't have drugs. We, you know, they didn't even have diseases. They taught these white people how to bathe. Like, that's embarrassing. Like, (laughs) I just, I I can't. And, you know, we wouldn't have rape culture. We wouldn't have this, you know, the natives, you know, valued you on how much you could give a person, not how much you could take. And I just think our country and our culture would be so much better if we had colonized to be like them, honestly. Like, we wouldn't have mass incarceration. We wouldn't have more prisons than we do colleges. Like, you know... And now they're digging up, you know, mass graves of native children. And like this country was built on genocide and slavery. And it has it's the system is doing everything it was meant to. It's um, very apparent to me how wise you are and not. Oh, Mark's got to bounce. This was an amazing conversation. I'm so sorry I have to leave. I'm overdue for another appointment. But I just want to acknowledge you, Elizabeth, for your strength, your conviction, the beauty that you stand to be, continue to take a stand for. And it's so hopeful to see you this way after everything that you've been through and the clarity with which you make the arguments that you make. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you as a human being and what a shining example you are of the possibility of healing. With that, I'm out. Uh, and um, so he's got a bounce. But Elizabeth, okay. I was going to say the same thing that what I'm really experiencing with you is how educated you are and knowledgeable. And it's evident that a lot of that has come from experience. And yes. So thank just you. really. I was also you. a student of history. I tried to, you know, stimulate my mind while I was in there because, you know, I read that when they put you in solitary, your brain literally slows down from the lack of stimulation. So it makes like regular stimulation when you get out completely overwhelming. So I was trying to like stimulate my mind and, you know, learn things while I was in there and the libraries there, you don't have much of a choice. Like there's just not a lot. So I'd read history books, you know, about queen Elizabeth or, you know, she wasn't, she was locked up for conspiracy too. Really? Yeah. And then, and she was born the day after me. So then she like rose to her, you know, being a queen after she got out of her incarceration for conspiracy. And I was like, Hey, that was me. So I I try to like channel that energy a little bit. Like, (laughs) all right. So let me ask you this to kind of wrap on this note. Who are some of the heroes you look to that support your work? Cleopatra. Definitely. Um, yeah, I like Queen Elizabeth, too. Um, Maya Angelou is another one. I just I, I love, you know, the revolutionists and, you know, the ones that just don't back down. 
even when it's in their best interest to. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's that famous uh, quote from Dr. Angela Davis, and I'm not remembering it now, but something about I am making the change or something. I forget it. Darn it. Anyway. Well, Elizabeth, thank you very, very much for your time and energy. And um, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap? Um, you guys can check out um, my website at legalleries.com slash en slash Elizabeth And I'm also all my handles are the same on social media from TikTok, Twitter, IG. It's EPM underscore art underscore 1111. All right. What's the 1111 for? I just like that number. All right. Perfect. It's a manifesting number. Recording stopped.